victory. You can go ahead and be seated. As you do, join me in praying together. Lord, we thank you for the great truths of these songs we're singing. Thank you for the promises of your word that set us free from the entanglements, the sin, the evil of this world and of our own hearts. So would you do that this morning, Lord? Would you let your word, would you let your promises sort of loosen our grip on all that is wrong and broken and sinful? Would you let our hearts beat with a new passion and a new fervor for the things that are true and right and lovely, the things that are eternal? Open your word to us, Lord. Let us see, let us know, let us feel, let us imagine the glory that awaits those who follow Jesus. I pray that you would open eyes today. I pray that you would open hearts to your word, that you would supernaturally rescue, redeem, save your people, and that you would help us all to be encouraged and to rejoice in the great truths of your holy word, your inspired, inerrant, infallible word. It's to your word that we look this morning, and we pray that you would use this time, this moment, to help us fix our eyes on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, who's reigning and ruling over all creation. Help us to fix our eyes on that moment when Jesus will come and when we experience the new heavens and the new earth forever. Prepare us for that day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Well, in our study of the book of Revelation, we are now in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I knew when we started this study through the book of Revelation that we would have to plod through some very difficult visions and passages, but I knew that there was this light at the end of the tunnel. I knew there was this glory awaiting us for this Sunday. So the last two chapters of the Bible complete the grand story of the Bible. In these last two chapters, we see really the eternal resolution to God's plan and purposes for all of creation. Remember last week at the end of Revelation 20, we saw that when Jesus comes, He will judge all people and all unbelievers will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. The story ends in ultimate tragedy for those who persisted in their rebellion against God. But Revelation 21 and 22 tell an entirely different story for Jesus' followers. For those whose names are in the book of life, this current life is but the tip of a mighty and glorious iceberg that will go on forever and ever. I love the way C.S. Lewis ends his seven-volume Chronicles of Narnia series. The last book of the series is called The Last Battle, and this is the way Lewis ends the entire series. After all the adventures in Narnia, Lewis writes, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say they lived happily ever after. But for them, 
It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Well, friends, everything in this life, both the joys and the sorrows, are but the title page for the real story of eternity. And the great story of eternity with Christ will be far better and more delightful than anything any of us can imagine in this moment, in this moment, this morning. Every unfolding chapter will be better than the one before. How do I know that? How can we be sure of that? Well, because Revelation 21 and 22 promises this and so much more. And so, Revelation 21 this morning, God willing, Revelation 22 next week. Let's read this morning, Revelation chapter 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the name 
of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystal phrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what will happen to believers when Jesus returns? What will believers see and do? Where will believers be? Who will believers be with? Well, the final chapters of the Bible answer these questions for us. And they do so by giving us promises from God regarding our eternal future. This passage, in fact, these last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, are just full of promises that God gives to His people. And so let me highlight this morning six promises we are given by God in Revelation chapter 21. And my prayer is that these promises would, would help us release our grasp on all that is sinful and evil and unclean. That we would, with these promises, fall out of love with the empty and bankrupt promises of this world. And we would set our eyes on these glorious and mighty promises from God. So if you're taking notes, six promises. Number one, God will renew His creation. God will renew His 
creation. Notice in verse 1, John says, Then I saw again. We've seen this all through the book of Revelation. John uses this phrase, Then I saw at least 35 times in the book of Revelation. This is another vision that John is allowed to see as he is caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Notice what he sees in this vision. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And the reason John says it's new in verse 1 is because he says the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Notice in verse 2, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down from heaven to earth. Notice verse 5, John hears God say, Behold, I am making all things new. So as we're going to see in the rest of this vision, John is describing in human language what no mere human has ever seen. John is attempting to describe what is indescribable. And so as we study this passage, we should expect our minds to be blown. We should expect our imaginations to be shattered and stretched. This is a vision of what God will do when King Jesus returns. He will remake everything that is. Now, question. Is John seeing here God completely destroying the old world and totally creating a brand new world? Is that what John is seeing here? Well, I don't think so. I think this is a picture of God restoring and renewing and purifying the world He's already made. You see, when God created this physical world, He definitively declared, this is good, this is right, this is pleasing in my sight. God created this world perfectly, just as He intended it. And so what went wrong? Well, we all know sin entered the world, right? And totally messed everything up. In fact, in Genesis 3, we see that sin brought a curse upon the entire physical world. Sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve and their descendants. Sin got a hold of everything. And this is why there is disease. This is why there is death everywhere we look. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says that this physical creation is groaning as it eagerly awaits the return of Jesus. One day, it says, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And so Revelation 21 is a promise, is a picture that God will do just that. He will set creation free from sin's curse. Listen, God's not just going to scrap this world and start over. God is not just going to let His enemies have the earth and wipe His hands of His creation. No, God is going to renew His creation to be our eternal home. God is going to remake his creation to be believers' home. Notice in verse 5 that God says, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice God does not say, I am making all new things. Right? That's, that's an entirely different thing. God says, I am making all things new. God is going to purify. He's going to cleanse. He's going to refine all of Creation. 
Have you ever seen someone totally restore an old, rusty, broken-down car? I grew up with my dad and my grandfather restoring old cars. Even though it wasn't something I was particularly interested in, I was always amazed that they could take a piece of rusty junk that was worth absolutely nothing and restore it to be a classic car, to be exactly what it looked like before it, was, before it got rusty and broken down. They would take every single piece of that car and either clean it or fabricate it or, or remake it so that it was all replaced and totally new. And yet the car was the same car as it, had, as it once was when they were done with it. In fact, just yesterday I was standing in my dad's garage and he has a new car that I hadn't seen before. He was showing it to me and just the top of it he said he had spent 50 hours redoing just the top of this car. He said there were dents in it that he had to carefully bang out. The entire thing had to be stripped and repainted and recoded and reinstalled on the car. That's what God will do. He will renew His creation the way He created it before sin cursed it. He will purify each piece and He will destroy all of the effects of sin's bondage on this world. And so the Bible begins with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible ends with God's recreation of it all. Friends, the implications of this promise, the implications of this truth are so important for us to grasp. You see, we are often wrongly taught that once a believer dies, they leave this earth, they go to heaven somewhere up in the sky, and that's where they'll live forever and ever. However, friends, that story leaves out so much. Yes, when believers die, their souls go to heaven and they are with Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. However, friends, the Scripture teaches in places like 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation chapter 19, they say that when Jesus comes, He will bring His people with Him. Jesus will bring with Him all the souls of all the believers who have died, who are with Him now in heaven. He will bring them with Him and then He will powerfully raise their bodies from the grave. He will remake their bodies. He will renew their bodies. And they, their souls will be reunited with their bodies. And they will forever be with the Lord. But where will they be? Where will they be? After Jesus returns with them, reunites their souls and their bodies, then where will they go? Revelation 21 tells us we will be in the new creation forever. We will be physically on this renewed and redeemed earth in the holy city in the new Jerusalem. Now listen, I don't know how all this works out. There are scholars, people much smarter than me that seem to have a grasp of this that, that I think goes beyond what the Scripture says. So I don't know, I can't describe all of this to you. Like I don't know how all the details work out. But listen, my understanding of what John saw and this, these promises that were given here is that God promises to merge heaven and earth together. That's my understanding of what we're seeing here. That heaven and earth will be united. 
Notice the language of the text. How will the holy city come? It will come down out of heaven, John says. God will bring heaven down to earth. Heaven will be on this new, renewed, purified earth. And we will physically be on this renewed earth forever. And so friends, this is why our ultimate hope is the return of Jesus. This is why our ultimate hope is for Jesus to come and make all things right. This is why the saints in places like Revelation 6 are still crying out, waiting for the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, all will be made right and we will live in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus forever. And notice God says, these words are trustworthy and true. These are trustworthy and true words And the rest of this chapter describes some of the promises about what our existence in the renewed, remade earth will look like. And so here's the second promise I want you to see. God will ready His bride. God will renew His earth and He will ready His bride. Notice how John describes what he saw in verse 2. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John says the city is like a bride. So my question when I read this is, is John describing a place or a people? Is he describing a place or is he describing a people? And I think the answer is yes. In fact, the way I read much of Revelation 21 is that John is using descriptions of a place to describe the beauty of its inhabitants. John is using descriptions of a place to describe the people who inhabit that place. The bride of the Lamb is the redeemed people of God, all believers from all times, Jews and Gentiles. And God has prepared a place for His redeemed people to dwell in forever. And so as John sees this vision... He's using metaphors to describe God's people, describing the place that God has prepared for His people. Describing the people by describing the place God has prepared for His bride. Remember Jesus' promise in John 14? One of my favorite promises in all of Scripture when Jesus said to His disciples on the night before He would be crucified, He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that you may be where I am. Like a groom preparing a new house for his bride, so Jesus is readying a place for his redeemed and chosen people. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb, says it this way. He says, Revelation has shown us the long-awaited, the history-long combat in which Jesus the Lamb has been engaged in in order to win and beautify His bride. Let me just stop right there. The quote's long in that, but that's a great summary of the book of Revelation. If you haven't been here, that's a great summary. A history-long combat in which Jesus the Lamb has been engaged in in order to win and beautify His bride. That's what we've seen. He goes on. The consummation of this romance 
is what Revelation has been about from the start. The blood and fire, locust and smoke, falling stars and trembling earth, the dragon, the monsters, the scarlet woman. The whole terrifying conflict has been about the husband's divine, jealous love for his bride. A love so jealous that he will fight all comers in order to have her all to himself. A love so sacrificial that he lays down his life to protect her from every threat and every enemy. And he says, now John sees the holy city beautified for her husband and radiating the light of his glory. The new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the Lamb is an almost blinding, imagination-overloading image of the people whom God loves passionately. John's concluding visions reveal the new home that the groom has prepared for his bride and the presentation of the bride, the church, in the beauty of holiness. This is what Jesus is doing and what he has been doing. He is beautifying his bride so that on this day she is prepared for this place that he has created for her. I'm sad we don't have time to go line by line through verses 9 through 21. But this is the way I see verses 9 through 21. I think verses 9 through 21 are expanding on this one image of the beauty of the bride. All of 9 through 21, all of the measurements, all of the foundations, the gates, all of this stuff are metaphors to describe how stable and secure and radiant the people of God will be one day. The point of these measurements and these jewels is not for us to sort of draw a picture of this, uh, uh, to somehow draw it so that we can see it. The point is that this people and this place will be like anything we can imagine. Let me point you to just a few things in 9 through 21. Notice verse 9, the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then the angel shows John, all of these details about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down on the renewed earth. Verse 11 says, This bride has the glory of God and is radiant like a most rare jewel. In other words, what John has shown blows our ability to even comprehend. John has shown the walls of the city and the gates of the city and the foundation of the city. And all these things represent the perfect plan of God to redeem and gather His people forever. Did you notice the size of this city is absolutely massive? The point is there's plenty of room for all of God's people. And it's shaped like a cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, symbolizing God's presence with His people. Now, we know all of these descriptions are symbolic. The features of the city are symbolic. It won't literally be like this because John says the measurements are an angel's measurements, verse 17. Thanks, John, that, that really helps us a lot. And, and we know this is metaphorical because notice he tells us the city is pure gold and like clear glass. It's impossible for gold to be clear. You can't see through gold. Again, John is using human language to describe something that is beyond breathtaking, that is beyond anything we've seen or witnessed. You can't even compare it to the richest treasures that we know in our life. All of these jewels, all of these precious stones point to the way that God has beautified His bride. She is radiant in splendor. 
Did you notice the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on the gates of the city and the 12 apostles written on the foundation? Thus, this city represents the universal church of believers from all times. This, this city represents the bride of the Lamb. So all of these measurements, all of these descriptions point to God's promise to prepare His bride, to ready His people to be with Him forever, which is the next promise. Number three, God will dwell with His people. God will dwell with His people. This is the best promise of them all. Highlight number three. Put a star by number three. This is the best promise of them all. There are tons of reasons to look forward to the new creation when Jesus returns. We will have resurrected bodies that are free from sin. We will enjoy a world without the effects of sin. It will be beautiful beyond our description. We will see loved ones who died in Christ. I'm positive we will eat delicious food and play and celebrate and work without toil. But listen, nothing, and I mean literally nothing, will be better than being with God in intimacy and fellowship. Look at verse 3. What does God tell John about this city? He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Friends, heaven and the eternal new heaven and new earth are mainly about God. It will be a restored Garden of Eden where God is with His people in intimacy and deep fellowship. Notice verse 7. God says, I will be His God and He will be My Son. Speaking of this adoption that God has secured for us. Look at verses 22 and 23. John says, And I saw no temple in the city. Why? Why is there no temple there? For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's no need for a temple. Why? Because we will be fully with our God. Wherever we go, we will be in the radiance of God's pure glory. In fact, in chapter 22, verse 4, we'll see next week, it says, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. We will not fear being forsaken. We will not fear being abandoned because God will mark us out as His own. He will be with us and He will give us all the security that our hearts have ever longed for. And so friends, here's a very important question that I want you to honestly evaluate and think about today. When you think about eternity, and all of us do, all of us think about eternity. But when you think about it, and particularly when you think about this promise of the new heavens and the new earth, why is it that you want to go there? What about it is attractive to you? Why do you want to find yourself when Jesus returns among this group of people? Again, I submit to you there are many reasons good reasons that we should want to enjoy this place and these people. But friends, if being with God is not your primary desire, 
then you don't understand the glory of this place that God will make new. There will be many joys and delights, but none will be sweeter, greater, more satisfying, more fulfilling than being with God, than God dwelling with His people. Friends, the treasure of eternity is God Himself. The treasure of eternity. I think this is one of the reasons for all these jewels and all this description of all this beauty. Listen, God's presence is better than gold, than gold and precious jewels and the largest pearls on earth. Each gate is a single pearl. Friends, these are just walls. These are just streets. These are just, these are just gates. The real treasure is God Himself. The real treasure is, is God Himself. He will dwell with His people and He will be the light and the focus. His presence will be fully ours. God will dwell with His people. But what will God do for us? Here's the fourth promise. God will heal all our sorrows. What will God's presence do for His people? He will heal all our sorrows. Verse 4 is one of the most beloved verses in all the Bible. Notice that this is God Himself who promises this. This isn't some angel or some messenger who will do this, but God Himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death and crying and pain are such constant companions to us in this life that we can't even begin to imagine living without them. As I was meditating on this this week, I, I opened up my church directory, which, which I do often when I'm preparing sermons and just sort of look at your faces and pray for you and, and consider maybe how the text would impact you or speak to you. And as I, I did that this week, I opened up the directory and I just began to think about all the known sorrows and pains in our church over the past couple of months. For a small church like this, I think we have a huge amount of suffering and sorrow in our body right now. We have members who are dealing with cancer. We have members whose families are in prison. We have members with Alzheimer's. We have members going through divorce. We have members with chronic pains in their body. We have members dealing with unbelieving and wayward kids. We have members grieving the death of fathers and mothers and siblings and spouses. We have members who are alone in nursing homes. But friend, one day, God will wipe it all away. One day, He will wipe every sorrow away. One day, there will be no medications, no treatments, no screaming and pain, no loneliness, no more funerals. Here's how Sam Storm summarizes what will not be in the new creation. What will not be there? He says, nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Nothing harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy. Nothing weak, or sick, or broken, or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading. Nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing grotesque, or grievous, hideous, or insidious. 
Nothing marred or mutilated, misaligned or misinformed. Nothing rancid or rude or soiled or spoiled. Because God will heal all sorrows. And one of the ways God will do that is by the fifth promise in this chapter. Number five, God will banish all evil. God will banish all evil. So verse 8 tells us who will not be in the eternal heaven. Notice it again, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now listen, verse 8 should actually be quite shocking to us this morning because at first glance, we should see ourselves in this list. Like if you read that list and the first thing you thought of was the Taliban, you're missing the point. Who of us hasn't been cowardly? Who of us hasn't been faithless? Who of us can claim to be totally pure? Who of us is not a liar? So how can we rejoice that we will dwell with God forever and ever in this renewed earth? How can we rejoice in this? What, what confidence do we have that, that, we can, that we can experience this, that we will experience this? And the answer is only because of Jesus. Only because Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Only because we have been adopted into God's family by the precious blood of Jesus. As the last verse would say it, only because our names have been written in the book of life. God will not allow anything unclean or evil to enter his perfect new creation. All who persist in unbelief, all who are characterized by these sins will experience the second death in the lake of fire. Notice verse 27 again. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those whom God has sovereignly written by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can be written in the Lamb's, can enter this holy city, who are written in this book, can enter. All accursed things will be banished to the lake of fire. This is why verse 27 says that the city will never be shut. The gates of the city never shut. Why? Because there's nothing left to fear. There's nothing left to get us. There will be no one to steal the gold. There will be no one to kidnap the people. There will be no one to attack this glorious city. In fact, this is the idea in verse 1 of no more sea. You find that idea interesting in verse 1? There'll be no more sea in the new heaven and new earth. Well, that's not saying that there won't be any bodies of water. In fact, chapter 22, verse 1 describes the river of life. You see, in the Jewish mindset, the sea was a place of evil and chaos. It was unknown. It was scary. Remember chapter 13? Where does the beast come from? The beast rises out of the sea. And so no more sea means no more chaos, no more evil. We all rejoice, no more drama. God will banish it all forever. And so friends, with what kind of passion should you and I pursue holiness and purity today if this is our final destination? If our final destination is a place with no evil, no impurity, then what kind of people should we be? 
Why would any kind of evil tempt us if our hope is set on a place of blazing holiness? God will banish all evil. And number six, and finally, God will satisfy His people forever. God will satisfy His people forever. Can I just say I love verse 6. I love everything about verse 6. Notice that verse 6, this is God speaking. And God says to John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Notice God says, it's done. I think this is supposed to be an echo of Jesus. It is finished from the cross. God is saying, here's the reward of what Jesus has completed, of what Jesus purchased for His people. And I also think God is saying, all of this is just just as good as done. It's so sure that you can just say it's already done. Even though Jesus hasn't yet come back and made everything new yet, God says it's good as done. Because God always does what He promises. In fact, notice God grounds this promise in His character when He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first word of the Greek alphabet and the last word of the Greek alphabet. I'm the A to Z. I'm the beginning to end. God's purpose cannot be thwarted. And He keeps His promises. He has always been faithful from the beginning and He will always be faithful unto eternity. And God promises, notice, to give the thirsty. That's all of us. He promises to give the thirsty the water of life to satisfy and quench their thirst forever. Friends, this water of life is what your soul longs for. The reason we look to everyone and everything else in this broken world to try to satisfy us is because we were made and redeemed for this soul-quenching water. Can you imagine a world where your every desire is completely filled Your every thirst quenched. Your every longing totally satisfied. Oh, beloved, the new creation will be incomprehensibly epic as God satisfies His people with Himself. Now, for those of you who know me well, you know that my favorite phrase in this passage is that last phrase of verse 6. Without payment. This eternal satisfaction will come to us paid in full. The bill already paid. We owe nothing. And you know why that's good news? Because we don't have anything of value to bring. We don't have anything of value to pay for this satisfying water. I've shared this quote before, but I love it in this context. John Newton once said, If ever I reach heaven... I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought would be there. Second, to miss some I had expected to be there. And third, he says, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you find in yourself longings that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's because you were made for this world. It's because you were made for this eternity. And notice in Revelation 21, God has been so gracious to us 
to give us just a glimpse, to give us just a vision of that world for which we were created and redeemed. Why do you think God does this? Why do you think God here at the end of the Bible gives us a vision of our eternal home? Well, I think one of the reasons is because God is being gracious to show us what the end will be like so that we will live our lives now in light of it. So that we'll live today in light of that day that He makes all things new. I think God desires for these promises to fuel our obedience and our faith in the here and now. So friends, God will renew His creation. God will ready His bride. God will dwell with His people. God will heal all our sorrows. God will banish all evil. And God will satisfy His people forever. Let's thank Him for that now. Oh Lord God, thank You doesn't seem adequate enough for us to express how deeply grateful we are that not only is these, are these things real, but that you've promised them to us, that you've told us about the end. You've told us what you will do. And so, Father, we thank you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died in our place to make all of this possible. Thank you that we don't have to face the lake of fire because we're clothed in your perfect righteousness. And Holy Spirit, thank You for regenerating our hearts and making us alive so that we could hear and love these things. So great triune God, we thank You for what You have done, for what You have promised, and for who You will be for all eternity. It makes us cry out, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, Lord, come. We long for Your coming. We say all glory, honor, and praise to You, for You deserve it all. We thank You for these great promises. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let's stand and sing.